Welcome to Risky Business with Bo York. I'm your host, Bo York. And before we get started, I want to tell you a quick story. It's the story of a poor Irish immigrant by the name of Catherine O'Leary, who on a crisp October morning in 1870, gathered her pail, stool, and lantern to go and milk a cow. This seemingly normal and insignificant ritual that surely Miss O'Leary had performed many a time before would become one of the most talked about events of that decade. Because as she went about her work, placing the lantern in its usual spot, the aforementioned cow kicked the lantern over, igniting the barn and connected shed into a blaze. That inferno would quickly spread to what is now known as the Great Chicago Fire, killing approximately 300 people, destroying 17,000 structures, and leaving more than 100,000 residents homeless. It's an incredible, if not tragic, story that was etched into the collective mental histories of a generation. The only thing is, it's not true. That is to say, yes, obviously the Great Chicago Fire occurred, and Miss O'Leary was one of the first to be affected. But the story of her guilt and the famous cow that kicked it all off, it was all an embellishment of journalists at the time tapping into the anti-Irish and anti-Catholic sentiments of the day in order to find a scapegoat. Today, we are speaking with someone who is very familiar with the role that stories play in both telling and corrupting our understanding of history. Dr. Jamar Tisby is a New York Times bestselling author, national speaker, and public historian on a mission to deliver truths from the black experience with depth and clarity. He's the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast, currently celebrating its 10-year anniversary, as well as the host of the podcast Footnotes with Jamar Tisby. Jamar Tisby, welcome to Risky Business with Bo York. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Bo. Man, I, it's so funny because I was recently talking to somebody and uh, they were telling me they had this idea for a book they wanted to write. And, uh, you know, it was really great, you know, and and I was and they were just kind of uh, having a hard time getting over that sense of, you know, am I good enough to write a book? Who would actually want to read what I've got? You know, all of the the insecurities that come with like, you know, trying to tell a story. and. I was encouraged. I said, you know, I had a friend once and I'll never forget. We were in Chicago and we were sitting down, we were talking. He was, he was going through a similar process. He was talking to a lot of folks because he, he'd been wanting to write a book and people have been wanting him to write a book, but he couldn't quite, you know, figure out which direction to go in. And I gave him this advice. I said, I said, man, just write it. Just, just sit down, write it, get it out there. And it'll be the worst thing you ever write. No one will want to read it, but you'll be able to get over that hump with your first book. And then you'll write the second book and it'll be incredible. <laughs> and in that situation, his first book became a New York times bestseller. So, you know, worst case scenario, <laughs> you're, you're a New York times best case author. <laughs> that's it. That's that, that is phenomenal advice. Absolutely. Um, no, that's for real. That's for real. Um, the blank page is one of the most in, intimidating landscapes in creation uh there's there's just it just brings out so much in you psychologically and emotionally imposter syndrome self-doubt um it ties you up in knots and it can and it's so much better when you have something on the page even just 
drivel that you you would never want <laughs> anyone else to see the light of day. But working with something is better than working with nothing. And so it, it's it's the simple, it's the age old adage of writing, just get a rough draft out there. But it, it, it can still be that huge hurdle of um, staring at a blank page and just getting started. Man, you are a passionate student of history. You're somebody who is uh, very <laughs> devout in his vocation. Um, and somebody who, you know, we've worked together over the years where there's this challenge of when it comes to communicating and educating folks about history, you have to present it in such a way that it that it connects with them and also can kind of draw them in. History is fascinating. It's filled with all kinds of of stories of you know, if if you kind of paint it in the right light, the heroes and villains and kind of these clashes of good versus evil, we kind of run, we flock to like mm -hmm. movies for this kind of experience. And at the same time, if we look back into our own history, we see that in uh, as recent as in yesterday. You know what I mean? Like we're we're yes. constantly seeing, uh, you know, these these big narratives play out in the real world, and yet sometimes history doesn't seem to want to connect with people. So there there is this challenge <laughs> of how do you take history. And put it in a format, and I don't just mean like on a on a in a book or in a movie, but like like format and structure it so that the story actually connects with an audience. As an author yourself, I'm I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, it's wild to me that the impression, the broad impression, is that history is boring. Like I, I tell history teachers, woe to you as a history teacher if you th if you make your th students think history is boring why because you've done something wrong because it's fascinating as we know real life is stranger than fiction oftentimes and uh even i i don't know maybe i'm just a, a nerd or a geek like that but i distinctly remember um uh, one book in particular it's called local people by john dittmer it's about mississippi um and it's about the civil rights movement he makes no attempt at a persuasive narrative basically it's like 400 pages of this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. But you know what? It was incredibly compelling because it was all true stories. A lot of them were um, heinous kind of uh, hor horrific racist things that happened, but it, it was the drama of this struggle of good against evil and and how are the people who want their civil rights going to react respond overcome all of those things so honestly maybe i'm not right the, the right person to ask because i find so much of history fascinating but you know to your to your point i think if here's here's the exercise read the history or learn it wherever you consume it steep in it marinate it long enough to just be able to talk about it with no notes then you make it conversational. Then you're telling the story. Then it's just like you and I saying, you know, you know, you telling me about uh, uh, Chicago in the conversation that we had about writing a book. Then that, but that's historical storytelling. And I just think we need to make it as natural, conversational, narrative as it truly is, and not get in the way of that. That's good. You know, I, I love that you reference uh, uh, Mississippi. Of course, that's where we met, and. As somebody who grew up in Mississippi, I'm very aware of the power uh, that history has based on who's telling it mm -hmm. and also how it can be twisted based on the narrative focus that the story has, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, when, when we think about the way in which history is told, the concept of like multiple lenses, like, you know, there's this kind of this mindset of like, well, I'll just say what happened. Well, okay. 
that's important. But it's not just about the facts. If it's not just about presenting the facts, there is a lens. And I think that's the lens through which the narrative is told. Talk a little bit about how you've seen that play out where you have almost kind of competing narratives speaking to the same history. So historians are academics and all academics do is argue. (laughs) Like (laughs) you want to boil it down. All academics do is argue. And I mean that in the best sense possible. Like when it works well, you have a scholar who takes a particular point of view on their subject. Then you have another scholar who says, I agree with this, this, and this, but I think you're off here. So let me make that point here. And then they go back and forth and then other people add to it, other people add to it. So literally all academics do is argue, but they argue according to a set of standards and a set of rules that helpfully adds to our knowledge. This is not the social media form of arguing in its best form, right? But all that to say is, you have to have a perspective. You have to have a point of view. You have to have an angle as an academic if you're going to write about something. It is not in in history just a recitation of facts, right? So even that book I was talking about, Local People, Dittmer is still making a point. The reason why the book is called Local People is because he's focusing on the grassroots everyday folks whose names you've never heard of and their struggles Um, and even persecutions uh, living under Jim Crow segregation. So he actually does have an argument and an angle. And in fact, that book was one of the seminal books in the early 1990s that really launched a movement of historians to look at grassroots local people and their role in larger national movements. So another example is my book, The Color of Compromise. It's The subtitle is The Truth About the American Church's Complicity with Racism. So I'm making an argument that when it comes to Christians in the United States, by and large, they have exercised compromise and complicity when it comes to racism instead of confronting it. And so to do that, I marshal all of these facts. So it puts to um, lie the myth that history is ever purely objective. It, it, It can't be, because even if you're just trying to you know, state the facts, so to speak. Well, what facts are you choosing? That in and of itself requires prioritization, uh, opinions about what's important and what's not important. So let's just get over the myth that there's any such thing as purely objective scholarship. We're not robots. We're not just assembling data. We're making arguments and making cases. And actually, that's not wrong. That's what you're supposed to do. Academics argue, but what you have to do is be clear up front about your angle, about your biases, and be open to correction. I'm a huge fan of kind of studying the era of kind of the golden age of piracy and kind of mm. the the history that exists, the quote unquote history that exists around a lot of kind of the kind of the primary pirates and actors of that era. And what is so fascinating is that it's a history that is driven largely by fiction like like by by mythology by um what's what's the term uh, uh unreliable narratives or un- unreliable mm-hmm. uh, uh narrators rather yeah yeah mm-hmm. so like in that in that world you had the the this concept of this book that was written by this you know quote unquote captain charles johnson nobody knows who this person is but this person wrote all of these stories about these these pirate captains, all of whom are real, and you can kind of connect with them and, and track them, especially with their trials and their dates, and you can kind of see how mm-hmm. things synced up. But they're very fantastic. 
You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. telling the swashbuckling adventure story that's supposed to, you know, kind of scare the reader, but also intrigue the reader and, and all that kind of good stuff. And you think about how pirate mythology and even a lot of the stories are retold in modern context, whether it's like stars, uh, black sales series or the pirates, of the Caribbean movies, like mm-hmm. all of this embellishing kind of layers on top of it itself. So that even today, our modern perception of pirates is kind of whimsical as opposed to, you know, this crazy, you know, aggressive, rebellious group that, you know, killed people and stole stuff. You know what I mean? And I mean, like, again, you know, the great thing about the most fascinating thing about it is the only thing worse than them was the governments and systems they were fighting against. And so it's just like, there's this crazy, crazy villains on all sides that it makes it for fascinating storytelling, but the history gets lost in the mythology. Mm -hmm. I'll add this point too, uh, before tossing this question to you, but I think about Disney's uh, uh, Treasure Island, Disney's Treasure Island. Mm -hmm. When that movie came out many, many years ago, the actor that portrayed the character of Long John Silver came up with this kind of way to portray the character where he gives them, are ye mateys, you know, this voice and this kind of con like this idea of what a pirate sounds like. Right. Never had that kind of, you know, yar and, you know, you know, kind of like pirate vibe been presented but that movie takes off back in the day and now literally it defines how we see pirates mm-hmm. in every single facet you could argue johnny depp changes some things up yeah i was gonna say lead. until jack sparrow <laughs> a little bit of diversity <laughs> you gotta walk to jack around my drunk and whatever yes exactly but that's the thing so i say this to say that when the store like when the when the mythology that surrounds the history is so engaging and ha- and so potent, it can completely, it feels, overwrite the actual history in the collective minds of, I guess, all of us. So what is, like, I got to imagine, A, that's got to be a challenge to a historian <laughs> that you're kind mm-hmm, of combat, mm-hmm. you can combat these kind of mythological, you know, retellings of stories that the stories happen, but what people think about them don't happen. I, and I'm curious, how do you tell a competing story. Like, you know what I mean? How do you mm-hmm. craft the real so that you can combat, you know, not to necessarily naysay mythology, but to very clearly right. define what is myth and what is real? I think it boils down to one phrase, and that's primary sources. Hmm. So the historian's stock and trade is what we call primary sources, which are the actual artifacts from the actors themselves in the time period. So you referenced before uh, court cases and you know trade documents and things of that nature that we can verify names, dates, times, places, things of that nature. Those are primary sources, and those are the things that help us ground and anchor the historical narrative in contrast to or complement to sometimes the mythology, right? So I'm not poo-pooing mythology. We 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 are um beings who create story um and and who live story as part of our identity. So I think stories, even mythological ones, serve a, a an important function. But if we want to talk about history, then what we have to do is talk about as as closely as we can actual events and people. And the only way we know that truly is through primary sources. Now, what complicates that is when those sources don't exist, Uh, particularly with something like uh, pirates or anything on the ocean, water (laughs) is not a friend to preservation. So there's a lot of things that that have been lost to time. and, And the reality is we will not know for certain 
we simply will not know, uh, especially the further back you get. What you can do is rely on probabilities and approximations. So if something uh, similar was happening in a different part of the world um, that we do have primary sources for, we can sort of extrapolate from there what might have been going on. But I mean, a, a lot of it is is just sort of conjecture, uh, well-reasoned conjecture, conjecture, conjecture that can be uh, demonstrated with, you know, reasonable approximate evidence and argued against. Right. But it is there is a pernicious aspect to the mythology. So in my area of history, I study um, race, religion and social movements. I look mainly at the 20th century and there are mythologies that are really harmful to racial progress and they're really hard to combat. So one concrete sort of popular culture example is the movie Gone with the Wind. This was a massive smash hit. It was gorgeous settings and uh, dresses and costumes. It's uh, beautiful people. And what it did was romanticize the antebellum South, the pre-emancipation right. uh, South. And basically what it did was set up these tropes of these benevolent white plantation owners and these happy black enslaved people who were basically just, you know, servants, right? Hattie McDaniel's character was immortalized, in, in, uh, but she was quite limited in terms of the way they, they wanted to portray Black people and Black women. And so you have a pop culture phenomenon like that, which is literally Hollywood produced. And now I hand you a book <laughs> by a historian and say, no, 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 this is the real history. So that's the challenge is that even when we have the primary sources, the stories are told in uh, certain media in much more compelling ways, and it may or may not be accurate. I think we're seeing a renaissance um, or or a new age of historical storytelling that is compelling, but it's really hard to compete with that. So it is interesting. I, I do wonder, I wonder about that challenge, like perception versus reality. It's something that in today's age, as you know, ChatGDP is, you know, has got our words and there's you know, voice AI that has got the sound of both of our voices, like hours and hours of voice, <laughs> voice material, mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously with uh, art and deep fakes and everything else, the concept of what's real and what's fake. In fact, actually just before the earlier this morning, I was on Pinterest. I got on Pinterest uh, when we, we did our <laughs> kitchen yes, and I've had on. it ever since then. <laughs> and Pinterest. So this is a years long thing. Okay. Yeah. It's been, it's been, yeah. You, you, you guess you're like, ah, you know, you got to kill time. You kind of swipe through and like, oh yeah, no, that would actually, okay. We could probably tweak that and all that kind of good Mood stuff. Board. But, uh, <laughs> but I was, I was on, I was on Pinterest and what popped up was a, it was like a, like a poster of a car. Right. And it was kind of like, and it was like for sale for $50. I'm looking at that. And I mean, it's nice. It's, you know, it's painted, but I'm looking at like the tag and you know, that thing that AI does where it can't quite get numbers. So when it tries to like, when the art AI art generator tries to put like words or numbers, they're kind of skewed. Like it's a three and a five mm -hmm. over each other, but it's blended in a way that it, the AI thinks it makes sense. And I'm like, this person didn't paint this. This isn't even like, you know, quote unquote, real art. This is literally just AI generated art that this person slapping a $50, you know, price tag on mm -hmm. and putting it out on the internet. I once did as an exercise when I was first experimenting with ChatGTP. I said, ChatGTP, write out an argument. Give me an argument. Give me a scripted argument between Jamar Tisby of Pass the Mic and Bo York of Country Squire Radio. And 
It was very interesting reading our <laughs> argument, Jamar. <laughs> wow. I wish I had what saved it. What were we it. arguing about? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, whether or not race was an individual issue or a systemic issue. And it, it was very interesting because on the one, like for the, for the you, while it had your general, like the argument was, was kind of what you would argue. The uh, substance of the argument was very shall we say watered down it was very mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. one note one point not really you know actually constructing an argument as you would for me it i didn't agree with my chit chat gtp self <laughs> on anything like this is very That's interesting i would say yeah wow. well it's like it's kind of gathering like this whole kind of concept like i don't believe any of this thing that this that chat gtp believes that i believe and of course, what it's doing is it's pulling based off of the content that I've created before. Like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. well, you're this, 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 this. Therefore, we're going to put you right here. And my work with Pass the Mic and other kind of justice and equity oriented stuff has been in the background. So my public persona has not necessarily, you know, it doesn't have that to, con- to, to construct from. But this all gets to my point, right? As history is being created, right? As as the now is happening and we see it everywhere we've got wars multiple wars happening across the world that were that you know the that the western world has kind of peaked up and, and is is watching right now uh we've got you know uh, systemic issues in america from all different angles that we're still trying to wrestle with and kind of define what even is kind of the 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 culture of america going forward right all these things are happening with this in mind we also have i believe the rise of kind of the chat GTP as a historian or like the AI as kind of gathering this Intel as kind of defining what the history will be. And yet without that human element to know, to have that lens, right. And to be able to craft a narrative based off of what is, as opposed to what is perceived, what is the future of of, of history? You know what I mean? Who, who ultimately yeah. will tell our stories and what will those stories look like? Oof, AI. It's frightening, actually. This is the double-edged sword of the information age, because what something like chat GPT or any AI thing will do is sort of just scrub the internet for information on that topic. It's not good at evaluating the veracity of that information. It'll look at the volume of information. It'll look at the virality of it. It will determine from these very straightforward sort of algorithmic calculations, whether this is significant and to include it. But what happens is you have propaganda engines, um, whether through social media or uh, video or any other publication that are really, really loud, get a lot of traction. And because there are so many eyeballs on them, or ears on them, they seem legitimate and true, but they're not. So it's a question of amplification. Um, so I think what what AI is is not going to be good at and and could be harmful with is it's not going to be able to sift through the biases that are always present and say, well, these are legitimate and these are illegitimate or harmful. I don't know at this juncture. <laughs> what we can do about that uh, on a technical level what i think does need to happen is the academy has to change one of the things that has to change in the academy is we start to value 
the public work of scholars more than we do. Because even though it's shifting, there's still this perception of, well, if you do it for like non-academics, it's not legitimate. Uh, that's why my book, The Color of Compromise, like it, that, that, that wouldn't necessarily count toward like a tenure track job to put on my resume, right? Mm. Well, it's not, you know, published by an academic press, even though it is history by the standards of the discipline, blah, blah, blah. So I say that because if we have public scholars, public historians whose work we do know and um, who have a track record and their voices become trusted, then that's one way to sort of have at least a competing counter narrative to whatever AI might generate, something like that. Um, another thing is we need to there's all these attacks on teaching history at all, but particularly racial history. And it's coming precisely at the time when we need to be doing more of that and we need to be doing it better because what it ultimately boils down to is information literacy and the ability of everyday people to evaluate for themselves. Just like you were looking at that picture, you could see where the numbers and the letters were a little bit off and you knew it was AI generated. We need to have a similar ability to filter information, whether written or spoken, and say, you know what, that's, that sounds a little bit transposed. That sounds a little bit artificial. Let me check with these other sources. Journalism is another one. So history is happening all the time right now. And there, yet either journalism um, uh, offices are being defunded or they're being taken over by these conglomerates that also have a very clear bias. So long story short, it's a very, very bad, bleak landscape. There are some things we can do, but it, it, it is going to be a mighty, mighty, mighty endeavor and effort in order to, to even be heard, let alone sort of uh, have a dominant narrative that's more helpful. I mean, it argues the, the the use of something like AI is actually case in point of how um, no history, no scholarship is truly objective, right? right? Because if it was, then it would we wouldn't worry about it. All they would be doing is collecting the information. And it would be very helpful to collate data, which, by the way, it can be. So I did a search, for instance, on I was trying to do some social media posts on uh, important events in like September. So I go to AI and I'm like, hey, what are some important black history events that happened in September? Give me a list right now. I can do something with that and I can verify it. Right. Did it right, actually happen right. on the 17th? Um, so there are some helpful functions, but it also makes the case that, you know, no, no, no scholarship, no information is truly purely objective, that it all comes from an angle. And we have to be able to identify those angles and evaluate for ourselves whether they're helpful or not. It's the thing, man. Data is data. But it's really the power of story that kind of carries That's it right. on and, That's and right. connects with folks. Well, man, oh, this is good. You know, I think I feel like this is where ChatGPT really messed up. Like, because I, I just said just a debate. I said any debate between the two of us, and uh, and it, I was like, you know, what probably would have been more appropriate <laughs> is something to the effect of like a, a futurist and a historian talking. <laughs> but I think all because one of the things that ChatGTP always tries to do in these things is give a point of resolution, and I think the point of resolution is always like we can't know where we're going without knowing where we've been. And so from that standpoint, <laughs> history historians to some extent, perhaps are more futurist than the future, the self-professed futurists themselves. Listen, that's huge. <laughs> we need to get you to talk at some grad schools. Um, and where we began in terms of, you know, people thinking history is boring. How do we have compelling narratives? I think there is an aspect of helping people understand 
the relevance of history. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the people, one of the reasons why people think history is boring because it doesn't connect to them. They think it doesn't connect to them. But one of the things that we say in the historical discipline is everything has a history. So whether that's the street name or the county name or the building name uh, where you work every day, whether that is uh, the kind of accent you have or don't have, whether that is, um, you know, the the color of uh, or particular shade of blue you're wearing in which, you know, like historical fashion show that connects to everything has a history. And to the extent that that we realize what you said, which is that we can't know where we're going unless we know where we've been, and that that really is a sort of forward-looking, future-oriented kind of stance, if we can inculcate that, if we can help people understand that the past is what helps shape who we are today and where we're going in the future, then I think we've got a shot at helping people understand that history is story. It's narratives that tell us who we are and who we might become. Dr. Jamar Tisby, thank you so much for coming on the show here with uh, Risky Business with Bo York. I love it. Have me on again. This is great. I'm going to listen to all of them. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Risky Business with Bo York. I've been your host, Bo York, and you can follow me on Instagram at incognitbo. You can learn more about the projects that I'm working on at interayor.com. That's interayor.com. And if all that spelling is too crazy, don't worry. The links are in the show notes. Be sure to check back in the next few weeks for the latest episode. And until next time, I've been Bo York, and this has been Risky Business. 